Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. This is the origin story for Josh Johnson, the uh, co-founder of Card Ladder and Cardboard Chronicles. I've been wanting to have him on for a long time. He's got an interesting origin story, and I, I enjoyed hearing it. I knew some of it because I've listened to his podcast. Thanks, sponsors, Tops, Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, and ComC.com. So without further ado, here's the origin story for Joshua Johnson. Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with Joshua Johnson. Josh, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about how you uh, got started. You've done a, a lot of things that have been real contributions to the health of the hobby. So how did that get started? Because I know you were talking about the 90s, so you weren't born yesterday. But you're probably young enough to be my sons. Tell us some of your hobby history, and uh, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Jim. I was really excited to have you on Cardboard Chronicles. That was exciting just to hear from you. And yeah, I'm honored to be on the show here. My origin story, let's see. I collected as a kid. I, I was born in 1988. So I was a late 80s, early 90s kid. And, uh, you know, I collected cheap stuff, just basketball. Then I started collecting Pokemon when it came out when I was a little bit older. I, I had a pretty small, modest Penny Hardaway collection. I collected a little bit of Kobe Bryant when I was a kid. Nothing too fancy. Whenever I could get over to the mall with my parents or I could get to a card shop and pretty common for the late 90s, mid 90s kids in the industry and the hobby. So nothing, you know, I never had any PMGs or I didn't even know those existed for the most part. I obviously had a ton of Beckett magazines and was just enthralled with the the artistry of the hobby and the unknown of it at that time and not being able to see a lot of stuff. I remember seeing like the 96 Chrome Refractor Kobe Bryant card on a lot of the Beckett magazines. I just always thought, how cool would it be to own that card? I'd never even seen the base. I'd never even seen the tops paper just because you know I didn't have access to a lot of that stuff back then. And I was so young. And then like most people got out of the hobby, started my career, my family, my career background is in software. So I graduated college with a, with a degree in computer science. And then I've worked for GoDaddy, Amazon, Garmin. So I've worked for some big tech companies and just built up my my tech career over the years. And in 2016, Pokemon Go came out. That app was fun because people at my work were playing it and I just kind of got into it. And it reminded me of the nostalgia, the fun of me collecting that stuff as a kid. So I went back and started buying old Pokemon cards, finished my sets. I finished my first edition base set, which is kind of like the main, the older set. And then from there, I was like, okay, that's done. Now what's next? Let me go back to basketball cards. And I really just got sucked in. I just, I got obsessed with it and started buying basketball cards and collecting and getting back into it. After about a year or so, I just had this need to get more involved. So I started a YouTube channel called Cardboard Chronicles. And I'm not a very excitable guy. I'm not like this guy who's going to carry a show. I don't, I don't have necessarily the, the skill or the chops in the background to to, to write and or create content. So I just started interviewing other people and I just thought they can bring content to me. I thought it would be interesting to hear stories from other collectors. And it educated me a lot more on how to approach the hobby and what types of cards people were collecting and what was rare and, and why people like certain things. I think that really started me into the education side of things where I thought if you're going to be successful at this, you need to know how all of the, the parts to the industry work. You need to know what sets are available, why they're iconic, why certain players are more collectible, why rookie cards, all these different things. And so I just kept interviewing more and more people and then kept learning more and got more involved and was buying bigger, more expensive cards and just sort of organically grew over that, let's say, about three years. 
of just growing and, and learning more about the hobby. And I still have a long way to go. I think there's a lot of stuff that I still would like to collect. And I focus mainly on LeBron because he's just always been my favorite player since he was a rookie. He's always been my favorite. So I've watched his whole career. So I just collected him, Penny Hardaway, like I said earlier, because I was getting back into that older stuff. And I love the late nineties stuff. It's just very nostalgic for me. So the, the PMGs and the, the rubies that I have some of that stuff for Hardaway and then getting into like exquisite and tops Chrome. So I feel like those two players really covered my favorite eras of sports cards. That's why I stick to those two guys. They don't have an overlap. So they just cover everything for me. And from there, I got more involved on Instagram and I have a, an Instagram account that's growing pretty quickly and uh, got more into the education side. Like I said, people look to me for advice or help on learning different new things. I've always prided myself on on being involved in that that, that aspect. And I met Chris a couple of years ago, Chris underscore HOJ on Instagram. We've been friends for a couple of years now, pretty close friends. We see the hobby similarly. I'd like to think we're both of similar intelligence. We think about things, you know, the same in, in life, not just cards. So he came up to me about a year ago and uh, he said, hey, what do you think about doing a project for pricing cards? And I thought it was an interesting idea. He came to me because of the tech side. He, he thought, I'll do the data and the pricing and the algorithms and the formulas and stuff. And you just can build it for me. He built a website and stuff. I started building it in terms of a way for him to input the data just as like an automated system that he could go in and quickly add prices and cards without having to spend too much time on it. And a couple months later, we launched Card Ladder and we've been growing, adding users ever since. And it, we've added features and it's expanded on what it is. It started as a price guide and it's kind of morphed into this digital one-stop shop for cards. We think of it as like a digital card show that you can like browse and see what's available, get pictures of everything. Obviously, see the prices of stuff, see the graphs, the ranking systems, the algorithms that we have to predict scores and prices and all these different things. And we added the collection tool so people can add their own rare cards that we don't track. You can do a little bit of everything in the system. Watch cards, set alerts for pricing. And then we built the apps for iOS and Android. That's pretty much where we're at today. Is it exclusively eBay or predominantly eBay? It's predominantly eBay. I, I would say that it reflects... The percentage of where cards accurately sell in the overall marketplace so that would be ebay for sure but we also track sales from golden heritage all these different like different platforms we even get pretty obscure with some of the auction sites that we've been adding lately trying to capture everything because now we're not just in the business of tracking the luca psa 10 prism cards because anyone can track those we want to start tracking more of the rare cards and giving people a sense of the overall hobby and that kind of goes to what chris and i believe in terms of trying to find things that speak to you as a hobbyist and things that are a little bit more rare and scarce to try to you know, protect yourself against some of these things going on with the, the common more base cards. But so we try to track a little bit of everything. Yeah. Except that toward the high end, you're sure. Is there a, any intention of, again, this may be based on your origin story. Were you always drawn to the better cards and the better players? That's not an unusual situation, but like I said, when I started, I was trying to do all the cards for all the people and mm -hmm. there are a lot of common cards in there that, I'm sure didn't get as much attention, but somebody cares at some point. But is is card ladder intended to be demand cards that have a significant action or on eBay to where they're trackable? Some things are so cheap they're they're not on eBay and they're not trackable in that way. But are you going to be a hundred dollars and up or cards or is there any line like that? Sure. There's not really a line on what the value is. I guess it's more in terms of like demand and popularity because we actually have submissions where people submit what cards they want to see added and then you vote. So it's like a democratic system. So we just lead with that. We see what other people want added. First of all, is what cards are in demand right now? What new sets are being released where there's a lot of activity on eBay? Some of the stuff is pretty cheap. We have got cards that are two bucks, you know, 10 bucks, whatever. But yeah, so back to your question, the high-end stuff. I definitely am drawn to the more high-end stuff as I got more into it. I 
became immune, numb to some of the seeing the same cards over and over, especially in the modern world. So I just gravitated towards the exquisites and the PMGs and stuff and just understanding the history of those cards and how they were created and where they're located. It's like hard finding some of that stuff, especially like when you're talking about LeBron and and Michael Jordan, where those guys are extremely collectible and a lot of that stuff's locked away. So it's always intrigued me to learn more about those and try to find and, and purchase them. And so, yeah, I definitely gravitate more towards the high end. So are you like me? You could go to a card show and you walk up and they say, what are you looking for? And and it's a smart aleck. You say, if you have it, I'm not looking. Yeah. People ask me like. People just want to sell what they have. And some of the things you're looking for are not readily available. They're clearly not readily available. But what your service provides, and I guess you've always had this. I've always had this thought is that you've got to be ready to pounce. If you're at a show or you see a card, if you think if you wait too long, it's gone. There are certain cards mm-hmm. that come up for an instant. You got to grab it, and you're maybe not even going to have a chance to do any research or a tiny bit before you got to pull the trigger and say, "I'll take it," and probably at the full price. Hundred percent trying to bargain somebody. So you've probably been in that situation. Yeah, I. Uh, it's definitely like a, a shift in my personality and approach when I see something like that. Cause I'm pretty calm and reserved walking around shows and then I'll see something like that. And it's like, all right, time to stop, pull out the phone, talk to the, talk to the dealer, figure out what we can do and and get into that mode of this is something I really actually want to purchase. It's not just something I'm going to flip or, or whatever. So yeah, there's definitely a big distinction between an everyday card that I see a lot that I think is a good buy and it's undervalued versus something that I actually want to own. And it's something that I got to go after. Well, that, that's where you're really providing assistance is that, the collector that walks in said, I want to buy this card at any price. <laughs> Again, in some cases, they've been rewarded for their chutzpah. This bull market can't go on forever. And so you're mm-hmm. providing an opportunity to say, I know you want to buy this card, but there's an appropriate price. It might be undervalued at this price, but at another price, it's it's not a wise purchase. So providing that service is good because people say, how could Tom Brady ever go down? How could Luka Doncic ever go to? They think maybe it'd be an injury or something. No, they just get too expensive compared to the rarity, compared to the number of people who want to pay. Everybody wants a Michael Jordan rookie card. Yes, but not at 700000 and maybe not even at 500000 Some of the market cap things just suggest that if all the cards came available at once, it, there'd be a, a giant sucking sound of, of money coming out of wallets and going into these cards that are legitimately tough but you at the same point you've got to say but it's at that price are there that many people that want that card at that price especially if a bunch of them come available at the same time yeah there's some cards that they'll literally 5x in price in a month and we'll see on these charts in card layer and people will still get you know extremely excited about that and say we're just getting started this stuff's going to keep going up forever thoughts and it's you know that would be nice i guess if you own that stuff but the reality is a lot of people are going to be cashing in on that the supply is going to go up this stuff's going to correct. Nobody, Amazon, Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, like you said, none of those guys can avoid supply and demand, like the economics of this. So it's not anything against Brady and Jordan and Amazon, but that stuff eventually is going to go down because like you said, people aren't willing to pay a certain amount. Last point, why don't you push back on this just because you're you know, coming at things analytically. But what I've found is that it's hard to know whether something is fully priced or fairly priced or overpriced or underpriced. And you guys have some excellent ratios that can provide some insights about that. But one of the rules I used to do when I was doing price guides is the sheer volume and visibility of the card is a proportionate data point of whether the card is overpriced. If you don't see the card, 
it's probably not overpriced. If you see a whole bunch of the card, then a bunch of people are willing to put it out for sale. And so yeah. I don't know that you guys have in your card ladder uh, some mechanism for when you don't see it or tons of them. That's what you're saying about some of the, the base cards that you see all over the place. It's what people have. It's what they're selling. There can be a lot of excitement there, but there's no true rarity. And anybody that's selling a card thinks it's time to sell. And totally. so nobody yeah, you, selling you, PMGs in the 80s, or, or I mean, in the they weren't there in the 80s, but in the 90s, and maybe even really in the 2000s. It's only been now that people are saying, wow, these are so expensive. I can get a, a new house. Yeah. Even the people selling that stuff, you know, there's only 10 PMG greens. So like, even if all of them sold, there's only 10 coming mark. But yeah, I think you make a great point. One of the things we track on card letter is the volume of sales over a given period. So we can just take a one month window of 86 Fleer Jordan and see that the number of sales has increased dramatically in the last one to two months. And it's just what you said that it's gone up so much that now the people that own it feel, okay, now it's too expensive. And I should be selling it at these prices because it doesn't make any sense or I've made too much money or whatever the case is. And so then, okay, now the price is going to go back down. It'll it'll work itself out. And then maybe there's a point where the volume stops or slows down. And so then now it finds it's sort of... Uh, That's the perception. The amount of cards in the float that are out there is an indicator of whether something's overpriced or underpriced. Obviously, like you're saying, of the green PMGs, when there's only 10, you don't expect to see even one, much less two. Yeah. Of something out there so it doesn't apply to that uh, but again those are the cards even though there's volatility on that price i, I think it's still a, a seller's market <laughs> if you have a really rare card of a great player yeah the one of the things that chris and i talk a lot about also is the intersection of rarity and being iconic because there's a lot of one-on-one cards out there of cards that people don't want whether it's the player or the set or some kind of off-brand thing so it has to be some sort of intersection of, is this card rare plus iconic? And if you're talking about PMG green intersecting with Michael Jordan, intersecting with rare, it's kind of like this perfect storm of a card, but there's a lot of one-on-one random sets from Panini of players that nobody wants that those cards aren't going to sell for as much. Just because it's rare doesn't mean it's worth a lot of money. Keep up the good work, Josh, at Card Ladder and Cardboard Chronicles. And for all my loyal listeners, check out Josh's stuff. 